Well, Lord our God, we thank you for the word that we have just read. We ask you now that you would give us understanding into this passage from the book of Ephesians. You would clear our minds and our hearts from the debris that has accumulated in us this past week. And you would grant us concentration, understanding, and wisdom as we seek to learn more about how we can function in this world as Christians. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to tell you a story. It's imaginary. I want you to imagine something. It's a large extended family. And the head of the family, the father, wants to build what we might call a mansion. So that every one of his children, his sons, and their families can live under one roof. Now it's not a commune, it's a mansion. And in this mansion, each family is going to have a separate apartment for, for itself. They're not going to eat dinner at the same time. They have different schedules. But the father wants them under the same roof because he wants his family and his grandchildren close by in the event of an emergency. Sounds like a great plan. Of course, his wife wants to be able to schedule family gatherings in a much more streamlined and easy way. And everybody thinks it's a good idea. And they have four sons, and each son has a special um, gift. One's an architect, one's an electrical engineer, etc., etc. One of them's a demolitions expert. One makes his living building things, and the other makes his living blowing things up. They all think it's a great idea. The construction project starts. It starts. And... In no short amount of time, the one who's an electrical engineer decides that he does not like the architectural scheme. He doesn't like what his brother has done. He doesn't like the facade of the building. So on his own authority, he has the workmen rip it down. Just tear it down. So when the son who's an architect comes by, he looks and he says, well, that, that, what did you do? He says, the thing was ugly. It was hideous. What were you thinking? So now the architect's son says, I'll, I'll show you exactly what I'm thinking now. He goes inside of the mansion with a sledgehammer and starts to tear apart the walls, get into the electrical wiring, just starts ripping it all out. Even starts a fire. After all this starts to happen, the demolition expert comes in and says, can't stand this entire thing. And he just blows it to kingdom come. Smithereens! It's gone! That's a crazy story, right? Now some of you are in construction and you say, well, I've seen things almost like that happen. The story is used to illustrate a point. We fight over silly things. We fight over silly things. In the workplace, it happens. It happens in families. Think of some of the battles that you have had in your family. Some of them might be over something significant, but very often it's over something silly. Why is he seated there at the wedding? How come I'm not there? 
It's my turn to drive, not hers. Why do I always have to drive and not him? Why is my family one that always has to do this and you don't do anything? You know, Dad always favored you. You were always his favorite. Everybody knows that. That's why you got the watch. Well, families fight over silly things. People in business fight over silly things. And all those things are unnecessary and sad. But what is truly sad is when we in the church fight over anything. It's sad when we fight in the church over anything. And indeed, most of the arguments and skirmishes that we have within a local congregation, they will almost always be over something that really doesn't add up to very much at the end of the day. And that was what Paul is trying to combat here in Ephesians 4. The whole book of Ephesians actually is about the unity of the church, the new people of God. One of the central themes of the book of Ephesians is that the Gentiles have indeed been brought into the nation of Israel. And that the church is really the new Israel. Paul reiterated the same claim in what we read today in the, in the epistle reading in Romans. Is he the God of Jews only, he says in Romans 3? Of course not. He's also the God of the Gentiles. And even the psalmist said that in today's Old Testament reading, declaring that all the peoples of the world will come and worship the Lord our God. And indeed, that is going to happen someday. There will come a day, certainly at the end of time on Judgment Day, when every knee shall bow and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. But I believe a day those days will happen even in history. And listen to me carefully. Every single one of you, as I mentioned last week, every single one of you, man, woman, and child, has a ministry that is supposed to be pushing God's agenda forward. In the early part of Ephesians 4, Paul mentioned those seven unities. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, one Spirit, etc., etc., etc. We have to always, the last three sermons I've been hammering that home. Those seven unities are fundamental if you want to accomplish your mission in this world. So let me just ask you, do you want to do that? Do you like the way the world is going? you happy about it. Would you like to clean it up? Or do you really just kind of want to be a spectator? Do you want to be a spectator and just complain? Do you really want to go whole in for Jesus Christ and his kingdom? Or you want to have one foot in the kingdom, one foot in the world? Have your fire insurance for the day of judgment, but really just have a grand old time according to the world's ways while you're still here. If you want to just be a spectator, listen to me carefully, a couple of things. One, you're not allowed to be a spectator. You have to be a warrior, a spiritual warrior. Two, if you really want to have one foot in God's kingdom and one foot in the world, you're really selling yourself short. You're not going to have fun in either one of the kingdoms. It's like standing in a house all day with one foot in the living room and one foot in the kitchen. Guess what that means? You're in a doorway. 
You're in a doorway. Do you want to stand in a doorway all day? That sounds like a punishment, doesn't it, kids? I don't know if parents do that anymore. Go stand in the corner. Go stand in the doorway, one foot in there, one foot in there, all day long. Get a bathroom break in two hours. That's how many Christians live their lives. One foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom. Lost our first love. Become lukewarm. Half-hearted. Those of you who own businesses, do you like employees who are only on board halfway with whatever business you have? You only, you know, they just show up half the time. And when they do show up, they really have other things on their mind. Or do you want employees who are there? They're there. They show up on time. They stay a little extra. And when they're there, they work. They do what you pay them to do. I'm pretty sure you want those type of employees. Those of you who are married, what kind of spouse do you want? Someone who's in only halfway? Some of you might have experienced that. Someone who's only in halfway. Someone who's only in 25% of the way. How painful is that? How awful is that? It's a horrible, horrible experience. God can heal all of those wounds. And he will only heal them in the church. I'm going to make a bold claim. The church has the answers for all of the problems that you have. The church has the answer for all of the world's problems. In fact, we're the only ones who have the answers. Nobody else has the answers. That doesn't mean that anybody here can do brain surgery or anything like that. Maybe some of you children, young people, will grow up to be brain surgeons. But as far as I know, not a single individual adult here is capable of performing that type of surgery. What it means is that when it comes to the fundamental issues of life and death, we know what we're doing. Or do we? Do we? Do you know? Do you know the answers? They're in the book. They're in the book. They're there for you to learn. Everybody can learn them. And we learn from this passage in Ephesians that God wants group strength. He wants spiritually mature people. We are supposed to be childlike in our faith, depending upon God. We are not to be childish. I've said that many times. Many pastors say similar things, and sometimes we wonder if the message is getting through. And each one of us has got to push ourselves to become adults. It's not easy. You see, physically, you become an adult unless you have a particular condition. If you get the proper nutrition during childhood, the proper sleep and shelter, you'll just naturally grow to your your stature. Some of you only get to be, you know, 5'2". Some of you are over 6'2". And most of us are somewhere kind of in the middle. That's not how it works in the spiritual world. In the spiritual world, you have to push yourself. You have to work out. You know, we all grow, but not all of us are in shape. What this passage is trying to teach us, actually what all of the scriptures are trying to teach us, is that we need to get in shape. 
We need to get it together because the world is dying in front of us. The world is in flames in front of us. And we are the only ones who have the fire extinguisher. We're the only ones. From Ephesians 4. Paul says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in Love. We looked last week at those five speaking gifts. Apostles and prophets, first century only. Evangelists, pastors and teachers, therefore today. God created the church, but these speaking gifts have been given to men. And in the case of evangelism, to some women as well. But pastor and teacher... Strictly limited to men, and only specific men. That may seem like God's being very exclusive. Those of you who are not called to be pastors or teachers, like I said last week, should be thankful. Because we're held to a much higher standard. But the good news is, God has called you to something. And as I mentioned also, even though the deacons aren't mentioned here, they play a part in this well as being leaders in the church. These gifts are given so that we would each understand what our ministries are. And this is made very, very clear. Because it, these gifts are for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come. Where? Till we arrive, till we attain to three specific things, to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, one, and to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now the word edifying can easily be translated as build up. These speaking gifts, particularly those of a pastor, which as I mentioned last week, include the ruling elders, and teacher, which definitely has to include the teaching elder, the pa- who's called the pastor of the church. They're to build the church up with proper knowledge and doctrine. But sadly, what occurs in many churches is people come and they're tore down. They're tore up. They're shredded. And they leave wounded, bloody, hurt, discouraged. Thankfully, that's really not the case here. We're doing very well with building each other up. We can always do better. Because what we'll see from this passage is it's not just my job to build you up. 
Each one of you has a responsibility to build the others up. The question is, is that what we're doing? Each and every one of us. First me, then the ruling elders, and as I said, even though they're not mentioned here, then the deacons, and then everybody else. And this includes you young people. You children. You're not to be tearing each other up. You're supposed to be speaking words of encouragement to each other. You're supposed to be building each other up. You're going to get enough of teardowns in the world itself. Isn't the world harsh enough, my friends? Isn't the world, doesn't it have enough bitterness and enough anger and enough bile and hatred? Don't you want to break from that? That's what this is. That's what the church is. It's not an organization. It's a spiritual organism that has to grow with spiritual nourishment. And the nourishment, according to this passage, is clearly based upon proper teaching. That is where it begins. Without good doctrine, you will not grow. Just as the body will not grow without proper nutrition. Yes, you can grow up living on cornflakes. You can. You might not die, but you'll be malnourished. Cornflakes have a very small amount of protein in them and quite a bit of simple carbohydrates. You need protein, you need carbohydrates, and you need fats, believe it or not. You have to have proper physical nourishment. Proper spiritual nourishment is good doctrine. It's not rah-rah speeches. It's not patting on the back. I'm not a life coach. I'm not a cheerleader. I can help you with your life, and I can cheer you on when you need it, but primarily I'm supposed to say, this is what God has taught. This is what God has said. Do you believe this? Yes, I do. Good. Now let's, let's find a way for you to put it into practice. That's my job, and that's what the ruling elder's job is, is to make sure that we're teaching the right things. Doctrine first, doctrine second, doctrine third. That is very unpopular. But if the wrong things are taught, what will happen to you? Parents, let me ask you this. If your children are taught the wrong things in school, um, what will occur? If your taxes are paying for your child to go to algebra class, let's say, algebra or geometry, but instead you find out, oh, what you do in geometry today? Finger painting? Wait a minute. And if you're paying for private school, it's like, oh, wait a minute. I'm paying taxes for those schools. I'm paying for private school here. In geometry, you painted stick figures. In geometry today, you played Monopoly. How happy are you going to be? Time to call the principal. Time to call the teacher. Time to set up a parent-teacher conference. And I, the parent, am in charge of this one. Geometry class is supposed to be about geometry. Finger painting, leave it for arts and crafts. Have to teach the proper subjects. Thankfully, I'm not a geometry teacher. As the kids can tell you from last week's elementary ed class, I cannot draw, can I? Can't draw. 
tried to draw the temple, and I decided, you know what? It's just going to be a rectangle. I'm going to write temple in the middle. Tried to draw a Passover lamb. And one boy came up to me afterwards and said, you know, it just kind of looks like a guy lying down on the ground. I said, well, what about these guys over here? And he goes, well, they're stick men. That's it. I don't understand how art works. I can't get that depth. I don't understand it. I do know that unity of the faith has to occur. We have to believe the same things so that we can come to a perfect man. This is an individual, even though we're a group. And to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is interesting because the book talks about Christ filling the universe with His glory. And we're supposed to come to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And remember earlier in this chapter, the gifts are given according to Christ. He decides the measure of ministerial grace that each one of us needs and receives. He decides the amount of ministerial grace each one of us receives and we receive exactly what we need. This is not talking about saving grace. This is ministerial grace. The job that you have to do in Christ's army, Christ will give you the exact amount of grace that is required. If you do not access it, that's not on Him. If I do not teach you about that, then that's on me. But nothing is ever on Him because He always does what He's supposed to do. And at least at this historical moment, I'm teaching you what the passage tells you. So it's up to you now to access that. Are you going to do that? Or do you want to be a spectator? What's the purpose of all this? Starts in verse 14. So that we should no longer be children. Then he describes what it's like to be a child. An immature Christian. You're tossed to and fro, carried about what? With every wind of doctrine. A mature Christian, first and foremost, is someone who knows what they believe. And is seeking to know more about what they believe. Very clear. If not, you'll be a child and you will be tossed to and fro. This is like a nautical term carried about by every wind of doctrine. And what's nasty about it is that it's not innocent because it comes by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Do not think for one moment that bad doctrine, bad teaching, and the assault of God's people happens by accident. Not according to this passage. It's a trickery of men. Listen to the cunning craftiness, deceitful planning. Just think of that. Trickery, cunning, craftiness, deceitful plotting. All of those are nasty terms. And that's how it comes about. Once was talking to somebody uh, in another church. And uh, myself and another ruling elder were discussing something uh, with her. And innocently enough... Um, she said, well, well, who are you to tell me about this? I says, ooh, this, is, this, this, this might not go very well. Um, I was younger, much less experienced, 
as was that ruling elder. And we basically in unison said, that's our job, which is true. But the way we said it didn't go over too well with her. It didn't go really too well with her. And I said, listen, this is, this is, a, this is a lie. You're, you're not going to go to hell if you believe this, but it's a lie. It's a lie. How do you know? I said, well, you know, that's what I went to school for. That's what you're, you're paying me. Your tithes are paying me to tell you that you're believing a lie on this one. And as I said, it wasn't a cardinal truth of the faith. But what she was believing was, it was trickery. And someone cunningly crafted a deceitful plot. You go home and read Ezekiel 3. It talks about Ezekiel being a watchman for the people. And that if God tells him, say this, and he doesn't, and the people die, the blood will be on his hands. I'm telling you right now that good doctrine will protect your children. And let me just be very clear. Warm and fuzzies are not necessarily good doctrine. They might be. They might be. Warm and fuzzies are important if you're cold and you're walking around in sackcloth and ashes. But if you're not cold, you don't need warm fuzzies. Warm fuzzies do what for you? They make you feel good about yourself, right? Feel good about yourself. What if something is very, very wrong? Do you want your doctor to tell you warm and fuzzies when something is seriously wrong? Do you want your accountant to say, everything's fine? Everything's fine. And then around May 15th, you get a call from the IRS and they say, you know what? Nothing is fine. Nothing's fine at all. Builder of a house. You want them to say, the building's fine. No pass inspection, no problem. And then the building's condemned. Is that what you want? Mm-mm, I don't think so. We become adults by understanding doctrine. And then we have to go farther. Speaking the truth in love, we might grow up in all things into him who is the head of Christ. This is not talking just about me as a teaching elder. This is every single one of you speaking the truth in love. Now, this is not talking about, hey, you know what? You, you, have, you have a problem with your personality. You know what? You know, you need to be a little bit more bold. Certainly, that, that, that is included. But this is talking about doctrine. You and you and you and you. You have to be able to speak the truth, and it's talking about doctrine, to other people. And they need to be able to speak proper doctrine back to you. Why? So that we might grow up in all things into whom is the head, Christ. Is there any falsity in Christ? book of Colossians says, In Him are hidden all the riches and wisdom of God. In Him the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. And all of this comes from Christ, from whom the whole body joined in it together by what every joint supplies. This proves that it's for each and every one of you, men, women, and children, and parents. One of your prime jobs is to know the proper doctrine so that you can teach them to your children. I teach them, the ruling elders teach them, but you have got to be able to reinforce it at home. One hour or so a week is is good, but it's not going to be enough. 
It won't. By what every joint supplies, according to the effecting, effective working by which, again, every part does its share. That causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Again, edifying, building up of itself in love. When you speak the truth to each other about doctrine, when we begin to all do our parts, the building grows. So the question of the day is very, very simple. Are you doing your part? Or are you a spectator? Now some of you are doing your parts. And listen to me carefully. Some of you are doing more than your part. You're doing your part and somebody else's because they're not doing it. Are you doing your part? Are you involved in the ministry and life of this church? Are you speaking the truth to those around you? Are you seeking out the lost? Those Christians who are kind of in the church but not, float in and out. Those who are not in the church at all, are you seeking them out and speaking the truth in them? Here's a simple truth you can talk to all unbelievers about. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father except through Him. That's good doctrine. That's essential doctrine. John chapter 14. Jesus is the only way. He is the only answer. We have Him. We are His body. We have the answers. We have to build each other up. So I ask you one more time. Are you doing your share? Are you doing your part? If we do, if we all do our part, if we all do our share, the body will be built up. And God will bring us people that need the answers. And we'll be able to give them the answers. Do you like going to someone who has the answers to your question? Isn't that comforting? When you speak to someone, you realize they actually know what they're talking about. They have the information that I need. What do you do? You sit there and you say, keep talking. Just keep talking and I'll take notes. The world is lost. We've been found. We need to find them and teach them and make disciples of all the nations. Let us pray. Lord, we ask a very simple prayer. That your spirit would enable each of us to know our part of the ministry and that your spirit would give us the grace we need to fulfill our ministry and to do our part and to build this church up in love. Amen. Let us stand and sing. Sing indeed to the Lord of all the earth. Fairest Lord Jesus, number 88. Number 88, please stand with me if you are able.